Uh, I don't know whether you agree with this, but I think we live in a weird world. Uh, we live in a world that has never been more prosperous. Uh, it's a world that has never been more connected. Uh, you know, you can get on an airplane and fly to the other side of the world 10,000 miles in under a day. It's never been really more safe and secure than at any other period in history. And it's a world that has never presented us with more opportunities and options than ever before. So we've got all of these things going on, prosper and connection and safety and, and opportunities. And yet, we are, I think, and it's proven out by some statistics in various research you can read online, we are a society and a people who are more anxious than ever before as well. So we have all of these opportunities, we have all of this uh, prosperity, we have all of these uh, connections, we have this security, and yet we are a people who seem more anxious, maybe even more neurotic than ever before. If you read the newspapers or you watch TV or you read online, you hear people talking about project fear or a culture of fear. And, you know, there's, uh, whether it's Twitter or TV, people are fretting on political turmoil and economic uncertainty and uh, global terrorism and uh, pandemics like Ebola and uh, global climate change, extreme weather events, natural catastrophes. There's so much to worry about. And then you just kind of think about not just the fears that surround us, but those fears that are inside us as well, in our hearts, about uh, our own health or our families. You know, so, I, so recently I started a diet, and we, Claire and I read up a lot, on, on, and you can read about the keto diet, which is a high-fat, low-carb diet, and that's okay, but if you eat too much fat, some people will tell you you die of a heart attack, uh, and so then you read up on the low-fat diets, but if you read up on low-fat diets, the critics say that, that they're carcinogenic, so, you know... Fear and anxiety can start as early as breakfast choices in the morning. What are you going to eat? Think about our parenting. Do we let our kids play outside in the street where someone might snatch them? Or do we fence them in and keep them in? But what about the dangers of screen time and obesity? There's so many facets to anxiety and fear. We haven't even got time to think about uh, moving on from fears to the disappointments and the disillusions that we experience in a broken world. You know, our lives don't turn out the way that we like in, our, in the ideals that we hold to or in the uh, dreams that we have, the heroes that we worshipped, the romances that we wish we had had, the relationships, the career choices, the people that we depend on and we love who let us down or the fact that we let ourselves down. So fear and anxiety and concern, disappointment, disillusion are common experiences for all of us. And I know that to be the case amongst us in the room because, number one, I've talked with many of you and I know some are struggling right now. But I also know it to be true because I've looked in the mirror and I know what goes on in my own heart. So we live in this weird world, don't we? Technological advances, modern technology, longer lifespans, better physical health, higher incomes, more leisure time and opportunities. And yet, the fastest growing rates of anxiety and depression and weariness that the world has ever known. Now, do you ever stop and wonder why? Why? Why is that? The case. Well, I'm going to suggest a potential why. And that's this, that we have lost something that once had 
uh, that we once had that kind of kept all those other fears at bay, or kept them in check at least. That we've lost something. We've been distracted from, uh, from seeing something that would have put everything else in its proper perspective. That would have helped us to understand the world and the way that it functions. And my suggestion, that thing that we have lost is the right fear of God. That we've lost a view of God. It's a little bit like this. Do you know, like, um, you ever go camping? Well, we've all been probably camping unless we're Nick, <laughs> who hates it. We've all been camping. We were, some of us were camping recently. And, you know, you get away into the countryside and you get away from the light pollution of the, of the city. And you stare up into the night sky uh, when there's no clouds, which is very uncommon in our country, I know. But you stare out. And what you observe as you look into the starry night sky is you see these giant balls of gas that are burning so hotly and so brightly that we can see them with the naked human eye from millions of light years away. And you stand there in wonder. I hope you do, because that's what it's intended to do, to make us wonder. But then your kid comes up, and they've got this little torch with a, a tiny little LED bulb in it that's powered by two of the smallest batteries known to man, and they shine it in your eyes, and what do you do? You go, I can't see. And then when you try and look up into the sky again, well, all you have is that kind of the residual blinding of that bulb that has made us temporarily unable to see the glory of the heavens that proclaim the goodness of our God. We're, we're dimmed from, we, are, we have a dim kind of view we can't see rightly. And that's kind of, I think, what has happened. That the bright lights... Of this world, the, the trinkets and the temptations and the entertainments or the worries and the fears, they're like that little torch that shines in our eyes that then makes it difficult for us to see what we were made to see, which is the glory of God. It's hard to see his glory when our eyes have been blinded by distractions or when they're fixed on our phones or when we're binge watching Netflix. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 has been given to us to help us. It's one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible, and it's designed to kind of stretch and expand our pocket-sized view of God and who he is. Okay, so we're going to spend three weeks in this chapter and then go on to uh, some of the other chapters that lie beyond in Isaiah. But the, the, the second half of Isaiah, from chapter 40 to chapter 66, is designed by God and given to us so that we can lift our eyes off of ourselves and off of all of the, the temptations and the trinkets and the distractions of this world so that we can lift our eyes off of our problems and the things that cause us anxiety. And nobody's downplaying that they don't, they don't cause anxiety. They do. They're very real. But if we can get our eyes off of them for a moment, to blink if you like, to get a proper perspective of God, they, then we will be helped. And that's what we're going to study this morning. Though our fears and our anxieties and our worries are real, there is a happy cure for them. It's found here in Isaiah 40. Now, a little bit of background before we jump in, because obviously we're starting in the middle of the book. Now, so let me just give you a quick whistle-stop tour through Isaiah. The first 39 chapters are under the shadow of, God's, uh, of the clouds of God's, uh, of God's judgment that's gathering. So his people for 39 chapters have been forsaking him. 
and Isaiah has been challenging and confronting their wickedness and their corruption. These are people just like you and me who have been distracted from God by the kings and the kingdoms of the world. So they've looked to Egypt for help. They've looked to Assyria for help. They've taken their eyes off of the God who made them and called them. They've rolled their eyes at his law and his word. They've kind of thumbed their nose at his majesty and they have turned their backs on him. And there's no fear of God before their eyes. They don't have a right view of God. They've been blinded by the little LED torch. And Isaiah comes and he confronts them and he says, listen, don't put your hope in the chariots and the horses of the surrounding nations. Trust in God. Pray to him. Obey him, follow him, love him, trust him, because he's worthy. But if you don't, then watch out, because judgment is coming. And all the way through these first 39 chapters, you, the threat is from the nation of Assyria in the north, that was the superpower of the time. And they were fearful, the, the Israelites and the, nation and the, kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah were worried that the Assyrians were going to come and conquer them like they did other kingdoms and lands. But through the humility of, of one king, King Hezekiah, God kind of stays the hand of the Assyrians. Hezekiah leads the people in humility and repentance and God stays the hand of the Assyrians. But chapter 39 tells us that although they're safe now, because there's no, been no heart change, because there's been no renewed vision to see God for who he is, the Babylonians are on their way. And then chapter 40 marks the, the beginning of a major new section because God gives Isaiah a look a hundred years into the future. So Isaiah is, uh, is speaking at about 720 BC, something like that. And he is now going to tell us about events that will happen about a hundred years into the future. And he's got this prophetic insight, a little bit like the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. He sees into the future and he speaks what he sees in the future to comfort the people now and also to comfort the people who will experience what is coming in a hundred years' time. So this is kind of like the hinge of the entire book. Though Judah has been saved, there is Judgment coming through Babylon, but God has not left them. He's got words of comfort for them. Words for people who, live as, who will live as strangers in a strange land. Words for people whose whole world and whose whole outlook on life has been shaken because of the brokenness of what's going on around them. These are words that are going to be spoken to a people who are hopeless and grief-stricken and despondent because they recognize that they have no one else to blame but themselves for the situation that they're in. These are people who looked away from God to find hope and satisfaction and meaning to life and joy in other things other than God, but have come back demoralized and despondent and disillusioned because they didn't like what they found when they got there. These are words for people who are tempted to think that God has forgotten them or forsaken them or abandoned them. These are words for people just like you and me in all of our fears and anxieties. So let's read verse 1 to verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 40. As I say, page 347 in your Bible. This is what God says. Comfort Comfort my people, says your God. 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And a voice cries, says, cry. And I said, well, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the Lord When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, O people of God, and herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, and herald the good news. Lift it up. Fear not. And say to the cities of Judah, say to the people of Judah, Behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Let me pray and then we'll jump straight in. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We pray that you would help us to put aside the distractions and focus our time and our energy and our minds on what you have to say to us this morning from your word. And we pray that it would do us good, each of us, in all of the situations and circumstances and the fears and the anxieties and the concerns that we are facing right now. We pray that your word would speak right into our hearts and bear fruit that does us good. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So what would God speak to a people who are fearful and anxious and concerned? Two things. Two things from these few verses. Number one, God will restore his people. And number two, God will reveal his glory. God will restore his people and God will reveal his glory. Look with me again at verse one, because God comes and with two uh, words to emphasize, because there's no bold or italics or underlying, his message of comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Or literally, comfort, comfort, my people, keeps on saying. He keeps on saying it. That's how it reads in the Hebrew. Keeps on saying God. He, he's, it's not a one-time message. It's a message for all of his people, including us. Some 3,000 years after Isaiah spoke these words. Comfort. 
It's a word that we all like, isn't it? And what does comfort conjure up in your minds? Maybe it's slippers and a warm, roaring fire and a glass of port on a cold winter's night. Maybe it's a comfortable bed or a comfort food or a sunny spot in your garden or a nice holiday destination or a song or a pet or a jumper that you like to wear that gives you comfort when you're sad, when you're stressed. You go, what are those things that you turn to for comfort? But here, Isaiah prophesies of a comfort that's much deeper and richer than a good bottle of wine and a fire or chocolate. Good as those things are. Those things are temporal and fleeting. And to just comfort your people with a there, there, oh, have a bar of chocolate would be cruel to such a people struggling. But true, godly, lasting comfort that Isaiah promises here is based on God and his word and his truth. And he speaks directly to his people, my people. So in spite of all of the people's sins, in spite of all of their wrongdoing, in spite of all of their spiritual adultery, if you like, God still identifies with his people. He still comes to them tenderly. They may be far away from Jerusalem because they're in Babylon, but they're never out of God's heart. The covenant that he made with their forefathers under Moses still stands. He still is their God. And they are his people and no sin changes that standing. So he comes and he says, I'm not indifferent to your plight. In spite of all that I've allowed to come upon you as discipline for your sins, I'm still your God and you're still my people. And I still want you to know that I'm working everything out for your good, comfort, Comfort, my people, keeps on saying, oh God. It's a little bit like he wants them to realize perhaps what we read in Luke 15. Do you remember Luke 15? There's the, it's the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son comes to his father and he says, give me everything that's mine so I can go and live however I like. I've had enough of this living with you. I want to go push out, spread out, you know, play the field, do whatever I want to do. And so the father allows him to go out and do what he wants to do. And he hits absolute rock bottom. He ends up eating the food of pigs that he's looking after. After living the high life, after bankrolling a lifestyle of sex and drugs and rock and roll, he's hit rock bottom. And the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15 reminds us that although this guy hit absolute breaking point, He still had a loving father who would welcome him home. He still had a home that he could go to. That's what God is saying to his people here in Isaiah. You have screwed up big time. But let me me tell you, there is a loving father and a home to which you can return. I will restore you, my people. Look at what he says he's going to do or has done. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That her warfare... Has ended. That word means literally warf- uh, translated here warfare literally means hardship or her ordeal. The things that have happened to you and are happening to you, there's a day coming when they will end. Your hardship, your ordeal, your warfare has ended. Speaking to the original audience, it was an encouragement. The days of Babylonian captivity will be done with and you can come home. Then he says this in verse uh, 2b. Tell my people, not only is their ordeal ended, but their iniquity is pardoned. 
Just think about that. It's, we're not just talking about Israel having a bad day or just making a few mistakes or putting a foot wrong. We're talking about centuries of disobedience, centuries of hardness of heart, centuries of forsaking God and continuously looking for other places for joy and hope and security and satisfaction. Years and years and years of sin that piled up and mounted up. And God comes and says, I'm announcing forgiveness for all of those things. Announce to Israel that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is forgiven, that the prison gates are flung open and you can go free. Your sentence has been commuted. You've received a pardon. That's good news, isn't it? But how? How is that good news? How could 70 years of exile, that's what happened. When we talk about exile, we're talking about all of the Jews living in Jerusalem, going about their day-to-day business. And then all of a sudden, the Babylonians coming with their armies and conquering Israel and then taking everybody back to Babylon with them. They were ejected from their homes. They were ejected from their land. And it wasn't just like that they were displaced. It had theological significance because God had promised them the land and told them that they would be his people and they would dwell with him in the land that he was giving to them. And so when they were ejected and vomited out of the land, if you like, under the Babylonians, it was a sign God is punishing them for their sins. Now, how does 70 years of exile pay for centuries of sin? Well, it doesn't. But God here tells them, you're pardoned. So how? How have they been pardoned? Well, here right now, it's a mystery that doesn't get fully explained until Isaiah 53. So you have to wait for that chapter. But he doesn't leave us hanging. He does tell us something about how this has happened. Look with me as it reads on. He, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now you could read that and think, well, they sinned and then God punished them with double the punishment. No, that's not what is being said here. Okay, This word received double is rooted in the Old Testament. It's rooted in uh, Exodus 22. It should come up on the screen. Hear what God says about law keeping and what should happen to sinners that break the law. This is Exodus 22, verse 4, 7, and 9. If the stolen beast, so it's talking about someone who steals your donkey. If the stolen beast is found alive in the possession of the thief, then he shall pay double. And if a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it's stolen from that man's house and the thief is found, then he shall pay double. And then it says this, The one who God condemns, the one who is a sinner, who is guilty before God, shall pay double to his neighbor. So there's this enshrined in the Old Testament is this idea that when you sin, it requires double payment. Literally, the word means double here. It means uh, to be folded in two so that the, the payment and the, and the sin are identical. Imagine like folding a, a piece of A4 paper in half. They're identical sides if you do it, it as you double it up. That's the idea here. And so when Isaiah says your, your sins have been, you, he's received God's, from God's hand, he's received double. He's saying your sins has been paid for in the way that it is supposed to be paid for. The proper restitution, the proper payment has been made. The judicial consequences of sin have been met. 
So it's done. It's dusted. It, the right payment has been received for the sins that you've committed. That's what God is saying here. It wasn't just that God arbitrarily decided, oh, do you know what? 70 years has gone by. I'm just going to forgive them now. Let's just sweep everything that they've done under the carpet and hope no one trips on the hump. God comes and he says, no, by the Lord's hand, God himself is paying their debt. Now, we don't know exactly how, but we do know the Lord himself is paying their debt so that they can be free. Isaiah 40 is really, it's the gospel in a nutshell that's going to grow and develop throughout our Bibles to our New Testament. But it's good news for them. Your hardship is over. Your sins have been forgiven. And it's good news for us because the same God that speaks Isaiah 40 says this to you and me this morning. Comfort, comfort my people. Keeps on saying your God. For your sins have been paid for. Not because I took you out of your home and ejected you from Bristol. But because someone has stepped forward and substituted themselves in your place and paid the penalty that you couldn't pay and laid down his life so that you don't have to die to pay for your sins. And he, I have received double. I've received the exact payment, the right payment, the proper restitution. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Think about the uh, Heidelberg Catechism. So in, in the history of the church, people have written documents to help us understand what uh, theology, to help us memorize theology. And one of them is called the Heidelberg Catechism, which came out of the town or the city, I think, of Heidelberg in, in what is modern-day uh, the Netherlands. And the first question on this Heidelberg Catechism is this. What is your only comfort in life and death? So when you think about life and when you think about dying, what gives you comfort? And the answer is that you are not your own. That you, were, that you belong body and soul, both in life and death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood. And has set you free from the power of the devil. That is the only comfort that we need in life and death. And that is what Isaiah promises here. And see how this comforting news is to be delivered. Look at verse 2 again where God says, Go and comfort my people. Speak tenderly to them. Speak tenderly to them. Speak with a gentleness. Speak with a kindness. Speak with a a tender-hearted warmth. Don't ever get the idea, folks. Listen, right? It's very easy for us to think that God forgives sins in the way that we forgive sins. You know, someone sins against me, and what do we do? We go, hmm. All right, yeah. Yeah, you're forgiven. Okay, all right. For the last time, yes, I love you and I forgive you. Don't we do that? I do that. When my kids sin against me, they can tell you thousands of stories. I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love you and I forgive you. Don't do it again. That's not how God does it. That's not how God forgives his people. He doesn't roll his eyes or sigh or with a sharp tongue just say, all right, enough already. You're forgiven. 
he says, go speak tenderly to the people. Go speak tenderly. Speak in the way that I speak, the loving heavenly father who says, a little bit like if you get it right, you call your kid up, not as 16, but you call your kid up when they're seven and that you sit them on your knee and you whisper in their ear and you say, I love you and I forgive you and everything that you've done, Jesus has paid for it. And we can move on and we can go on from here. And you can be restored. Let's hug. Let's hug it out. That's how God speaks to his people. A tenderness designed to comfort our hearts, not only to declare legal truths. Speak tenderly to my people. Tell her, the warfare's ended. Your sins are pardoned. It's been paid for and done by the Lord's hand. God will restore his people. So maybe you walked in this morning and you're full of fears, full of anxieties, full of an awareness of your sin where you've screwed up this week. God is here to meet us every Sunday throughout the week. God is there to meet us. He's there in the pages of his word to comfort his people and to speak tenderly to us, to forgive us and to bring us hope and to remind us that he will restore his people. Secondly, God will reveal his glory. God will reveal his glory. Look with me at verses 3 to 5 because the message of comfort to God's people continues as God announces that he himself is coming to visit them. All right? He's coming to visit them. And so he says to them, listen, get ready. Make a highway in the desert. Lower the valleys, raise the hills, flatten everything out, smooth it and make it good. Now, in the 21st century, especially living in Britain, we understand this kind of language because we're excellent in this country at preparing for royal pageants and processions. If you ever go to London, uh, you, know, most of the, you know, most of the time something is happening where the queen is at work or one of the royal family. And you know what they do? The roads close and the barriers go up and the traffic is stopped and the, the traffic lights are turned from red to being on permanent green along the route that they proceed. And they fill in the potholes and they get out the flags and they clear away the rubbish and they get ready for a royal procession. That's what Isaiah is saying here. He's just doing it in different, more poetic language. He has no intention of them going out with bulldozers and tarmac and steamrollers to make a physical road. He's saying, no, get ready because the king is coming and he's going to reveal all of his glory. So get ready. Prepare a royal highway for him. And this is the kind of king that's arriving. Look with me down at verses 9 to 11 because uh, Isaiah says, Behold your God. Here he is. This is the one that's coming. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. He's a strong warrior. He's coming to fight for his people. He's coming to stick up for them, to defend them, to conquer all of his foes and to set them free. He's coming in all of his might, with all of his strength to rule and to reign and to establish his kingdom that can never be thwarted and to rescue his people from all that oppresses them. Behold, our God is a strong warrior. Then look at what it says as he goes on. Behold, again, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. So this strong warrior is coming and he's got the the spoils of war with him that he's ready to distribute. 
He's a generous benefactor. He has all of the resources that his people need. And he's going to willingly give them away so that we can enjoy them. But that's not all. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. This mighty warrior, this generous benefactor is also a tender-hearted shepherd who's going to come and lead and guide his people to fresh pasture. He's going to care for them. He's going to pick the flies off them and the ticks out of their ears. He's going to take them up in his loving arms, even the very weakest ones, the lambs. He's going to provide for them. He's going to care for them. He's going to carry them close to his heart. He's going to feed them and he's going to nourish them. That's the kind of God that is coming in his glory. Strong enough to win the battle. Tender enough to care for the weakest among us. So Isaiah says to God's people, get ready. Prepare the way of the Lord for this divine king who's coming to exercise his saving power. Roll out the red carpet. Now, how do they roll out the red carpet? Well, he doesn't exactly tell us how to prepare other than in poetic language. But if you flick forward just a few chapters to Isaiah 57, uh, it should come up on the screen, so you don't necessarily need to do it. But verses 14 and, and 15, this is how we prepare. And it shall be said... To the God's people, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and the holy places. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We prepare for the arrival of the king with repentance. Did you notice that? With repentance. Remove all of the obstacles. What are the obstacles? Well, usually in our hearts, it's that we don't feel like we need help. Usually it's that we are proud, that we think we can be okay on our own, that we're self-sufficient, that we'll be just fine. But God says, listen, I come and I come to dwell with those who are lowly, Those who are humble, those who are aware of their need, those who are contrite. Those who are not just filled with regrets, but those who repent. That's how we prepare. We look in the mirror and we don't say, you are a strong, confident man or woman. And we say, I need Jesus. I need the king who's coming. The strong warrior who can fight for me. The tender shepherd who can carry me. Verses 3 to 5 in Isaiah chapter 40 should be familiar to all of us because each of the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, records John the Baptist, the man called John being the one who prepared the way for the Lord. John the Baptist went throughout all of the regions of the Jordan in Israel proclaiming a baptism of repentance and calling the people to repent for the forgiveness of their sins. You can read about it in Luke 3 verses 4 and 7 to 14 when you've got time. But John prepared them. He called them to repentance. And then in John 1 verse 29, he made this incredible statement. Behold, echoing the language of Isaiah 40. Behold your God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
John was doing what Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 57 would have him do. Prepare the way of the Lord for Jesus. The ultimate revelation of God's glory. The ultimate warrior. The ultimate benefactor. The ultimate good shepherd. And Jesus arrives on the scene and there is no greater display of the glory of God than when Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross of Calvary and God's holiness and wrath and justice and righteousness met and kissed his wisdom and his patience and his power and his mercy and his grace to rescue anxious people, fearful people, needy people like you and me from our sins. So this morning, if you want to be free from your fears, if you want to get a right perspective on what ails you, if you would receive the grace that the mighty warrior, that the generous benefactor, that the good shepherd would offer, he calls us to humility. Whether that be for Salvation for the very first time, if you're here and you're not a Christian, or whether that be for a particular situation that you face in your life right now, it's received by humility. It's received by recognizing your need of this divine King. You see, I don't know how we walked into church this morning. Perhaps you walked in and you were feeling the burden and the weight of what is going on in your heart or your life or your family or maybe your body this morning and you feel about this big and you feel a little bit hopeless and a little bit helpless. Well, good news this morning. Isaiah tells us God meets with such people as those. He is here to meet those who feel crushed by the weight of their lives or situations or sins. Hear what Isaiah says in 61, verse 1 and 2. These are words that Jesus said in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. God's here this morning to bind up the brokenhearted, to set the people captives free and to help the needy and the weak. If we strut in with self-confidence and self-righteousness, feeling pretty good about ourselves and that we got it all together, or even if we came in with a mask that says, I'm at church and so I've got to tell everybody that I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Yeah, fine, thank you. And yet inside we're dying. Then we need to humble ourselves and repent. For God has said he dwells with the lowly and the contrite. Verse 6 and 8 reminds us that we don't have the power and the resources to help ourselves. It tells us humanity is like flower and grass. We look good in our, in our time and in our season. Athletes win gold medals. Scientists make great breakthroughs in research. You know, um, young men and women, we can refine our health and our beauty. Conquerors, whether economically or geographically, can establish empires. We can set up businesses. We can do all of these things. And then what happens? We die get put in a box and buried in six feet under the ground. 
It's all temporary. Everything has a shelf life that humans do. But God says, my word, my promises, my truth, what I'm about lasts and stands forever. Verse 8. Let's hear God's word this morning and not try to work it out ourselves. His word and his promises are true. He will restore his people and he will reveal his glory. You know, there's a lot of stuff going on in each of our lives right now. There is. Talk to some of you. I know there is. Perhaps there's even more going on that anybody knows about or that we don't even know the full extent of. And that's fine. But this morning, Isaiah comes and he says, don't don't miss what God is saying. He's here to comfort his people. He's here as the mighty warrior to fight for you and as the tender shepherd to carry you when you can't walk. Don't, Don't neglect what God might be trying to accomplish in your life right now, even this morning as we've sung and prayed and preached. Let's not go home and bury our struggles in food or family or TV or Netflix or sport. Let's not allow God's word to stir us in the moment and yet remain unchanged. Let's run to Jesus. Let's run to Jesus who's our warrior and our shepherd. Let's fall on our face before him. Let's cry out to him in all of our brokenness and in our need, whether that be for the first time or the 500th time. And let's ask him to fight for us, to comfort us, to impart fresh faith for us, to grace to us, power and strength to confront the sin that needs to be confronted, to grow in grace where we need to be growing, to fight, to repent, to say no to ungodliness, to say yes to righteousness, to pursue holiness, to humble ourselves and seek the help that we need. If we lack wisdom, let's ask him and he gives it. Let's run to Jesus, the conquering king, the comforting king. As we heard from 1 Peter, let's humble ourselves under God's mighty hand and cast our anxieties on him for he cares for us and his word and his promise is true. He will meet us and help us. And so Isaiah says in verse 9, fear not, fear not. There is a happy cure for all that ails you and it is Jesus. All you got to do is look to him. Behold your God who says comfort, comfort. He keeps on saying comfort to all his people. What hope we have. Let's pray.